Section 8 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 3, Part 1. Chapter 3. First Years of Widowhood. Solitude, Study, Enlarged Views. I Return into Society. Renewed Enjoyment of Life. Thoughts of Second Marriage. I Chaperone My Younger Sisters. I am introduced to Baron Tilling. He brings me an account of the manner of Arnie's death. Now, Martha, it is all over. Solferino was decisive. We are beaten. My father came hastily one morning onto the terrace with these words, while I was sitting under the shadow of a clump of lime trees. I had gone back home to the house of my girlhood with my little Ruru. A week after the great battle which had struck me down, my family moved to Grumitz, our country house in Lower Austria, and I with them. I should have been in despair alone. Now all were again around me, just as before my marriage, Papa, Aunt Mary, my little brother, and my two growing sisters. All of them did what they possibly could to mitigate my grief, and treated me with a certain consideration which did me good. Evidently they found in my sad fate a sort of consecration, a something which raised me above those around me, even a kind of merit. Next to the blood which soldiers pour out on the altar of their country, the tears which the bereaved mothers, wives, and sweethearts of the soldiers pour on the same altar become a libation hardly less sacred. And thus it was a slight feeling of pride, a consciousness that to have lost a beloved husband on the field of honour conferred a kind of military merit which had helped me most to bear my pain. And I was far from being the only one. How many, are oh, how many women in the whole of the country were there mourning over their loved ones sleeping in Italian earth? At that time no further particulars were known to me of Arnie's end, He'd been found dead, recognised, and buried. That was all I knew. His last thought, doubtless, had flown towards me and our little darling, and his consolation in the last moment must have been, I have done my duty, and more than my duty. We are beaten, repeated my father gloomily, as he sat down by me on the garden seat. So those who have been sacrificed were sacrificed in vain. I sighed. Those who have been sacrificed are to be envied, for they know nothing of the shame which has befallen us. But we will soon pick up again for all that, even if, at present, peace, as they say, must be concluded. Ah, oh, God grant it, I interrupted. Too late indeed for my poor Arnie, but still thousands of others will be spared. You are always thinking of yourself and of individuals, but in this matter it is Austria which is in question. Well, but does not she consist entirely of individuals? My dear, a kingdom, a state lives a longer and more important life than individuals do. They disappear generation after generation, while the state expands still farther, grows into glory, greatness and power, or sinks and crumples up and disappears, if it allows itself to be overcome by other kingdoms. Therefore, the most important and the highest aim for which any individual has to struggle and for which he ought to be glad to die is the existence, the greatness and the well-being of the kingdom. I impressed these words on my mind in order to put them down the same day in the red volume. They seemed to me to express so clearly and strongly the feeling which I had derived in my student days from the books of history, a feeling which, in these last times, after Arnie's departure, had been driven out of my mind by fear and pity. I wanted to cleave to it again as close as possible, in order to find consolation and support in the idea that my darling had fallen in a great cause, and that my misfortune itself was only one element in this great cause. Aunt Mary had, on the other hand, a different source of consolation ready. "'Do not weep, dear child,' she used to say when I was sunk in profound grief. 
do not be so selfish as to bewail him who is now so happy. He is among the blessed, and is looking down on you with blessing. After a few quickly passing years on earth, you will find him again in the fullness of his glory. For those who have fallen on the field of battle, heaven reserves its fairest dwellings. Happy those who were called away just at the moment when they were fulfilling a holy duty. The dying soldier stands next in merit to the dying martyr. Then I am to be glad that Arno... No, not to be glad, that would be asking too much, but to bear your lot with humble resignation. It is a probation that heaven sends you, and from which you should emerge purified and strengthened in faith. So, in order that I might be tried and purified, Arno had to... No, not on that account, but who dare seek to sound the hidden ways of providence? Not I, at least. Although such objections always would rise in me against Aunt Mary's consolations, yet, in the depths of my heart, I readily fell in with the mystical assumption that my glorified one was now enjoying in heaven the reward of his death of sacrifice, and that his memory on earth was adorned with the eternal glory of sainthood. How exalting, though painful at the same time, was the effect on me of the great morning celebration at which I was present in the Cathedral of St. Stephen's on the day of our departure. It was the day profundis for our warriors who had fallen on foreign soil and were buried there. In the centre of the church, a high catafalque had been erected, surrounded by a hundred lighted candles and decorated with military emblems, flags and arms. From the choir came down the moving strains of the requiem, and those present, chiefly women in mourning, were almost all weeping aloud. And each one was weeping, not only for him, whom she had lost, but for the rest, who had met with the same death, for all of them together, all the poor, brave brothers-in-arms who had given their young lives for us all, that is, for the country." The honour of the nation, and the living soldiers who attended this ceremony, all the generals and officers who had remained behind in Vienna, were there, and several companies of soldiers filled the background. All were waiting and ready to follow their fallen comrades without delay, without murmur, without fear. Yes, with the clouds of incense, with the pealing bells, and the voice of the organ, with the tears poured out in a common woe, there must surely have risen a well-pleasing sacrifice to heaven, and the Lord of Armies must shower his blessing down on those to whom this catafalque was erected. So I thought at that time. At least these were the words with which the Red Book describes this morning ceremony. About fourteen days later than the news of the defeat of Solferino came the news of the signing of the preliminaries of peace at Villafranca. My father took all the pains possible to explain to me that for political reasons it was a matter of pressing necessity to conclude this peace, and which I assured him that it seemed to me joyful news anyhow that this fighting and dying should come to an end, that my good papa would not be hindered from setting forth at length all his exculpatory statements. You must not think that we are afraid, even if it has a look as if we had made concessions, yet we forgo nothing of our dignity, and know perfectly what we are about. If it concerned ourselves only, we should never have given up the game on account of this little check at Solferino. Oh no, far from it. We should only have had to send down another corps d'armée, and the enemy would have been obliged to evacuate Milan again in quick time. But you know, Martha, that other things are concerned, general interests and principles. We renounce the further prosecution of the war, for this reason, in order to secure the other principalities in Italy which are menaced, those that the captain of the Sardinian robbers, with his French hangman ally, would be glad to fall upon also. They want to advance against Modena, Tuscany, whereas, you know, dynasties are in power related to our own imperial family, nay, even against Rome, against the Pope, the Vandals. If we do provisionally give up Lombardy, yet we keep Venetia all the time, and are able to assure the South Italian states and the Holy See of our support. 
so you perceive that it's merely for political reasons and in the interest of the balance of power in Europe. Oh yes, father, I broke in. I perceive it, but oh that these reasons had prevailed before Magenta, I continued, sighing bitterly. Then, to change the subject, I pointed to a parcel of books that had come in that day from Vienna. See here, the bookseller has sent us several things on approval. Amongst them there is the work of an English natural philosopher, one Darwin, the origin of species, and he calls our attention to it as being of special interest and likely to be of epoch-making importance. My worthy friend must excuse me. Who, in such a momentous time as this, could take an interest in these tomfooleries? What could a book about the kinds of beasts and plants contain of epoch-making importance for us men? The Confederation of the Italian States, hegemony of Austria and the German Bund, these are matters of far-stretching influence. These will long keep their place in history, when no living man shall any longer know anything about that English book there. Mark my words. I did mark them. End of section 8